Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. First, how did you start your New Year's? How about uh, taking a stand against Soji? The Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Program in BC Schools, that was a choice for two BC politicians. An anti-Soji rally in Abbotsford was attended this week by MLA Bruce Banman and his boss, BC Conservative leader John Rustad. Well, Banman had a chance to talk to the crowd. It is your democratic right in Canada to protest government and say enough's enough. We don't like this. We don't want this. Parents have rights. It's not about hate. No. This is about actual love. Love of our children and love that parents have the right to know what's being said to their children and what's being taught to their children. After all, we're the ones that are paying for the education they get. And Bruce Bamman shared his comments from that clip on social media on X, and it is developing into definitely a divisive issue, but it's also going to be one of those wedge issues in 2024, I believe. Let's bring in Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Richard, Happy New Year. You can still say that today, right? Yeah, I think so, Bruce. That's a contentious <laughs> issue, too. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Happy yeah. New Year to you. What do you make of this? Uh, I, I was honestly shocked and surprised that two BC politicians and uh, not fringe politicians, mainstream politicians would be out there at this rally, let alone speaking. The Conservative Party of BC has made this a goal of theirs to get rid of Soji 123 if elected. One of the big issues here, Bruce, is the fact that so many parents who are concerned about Soji have not actually read what Soji is. All of the resources available to teachers and administrators through Soji is available online. There has been a lot of misperceptions around exactly what is in that literature. Uh, The B.C. Conservatives have frequently in the legislature brought up examples of lewd language used in reading materials or sexual education content uh, taught in classrooms. That is not what Soji 123 is. There are a few rogue teachers in the system who may use content that is seen as sexually explicit or not age appropriate. But a vast majority of teachers are using specifically the resources through Soji 123 to explain to their kids questions around bullying, around sexual orientation, around, you know, place in the world. Now, the Richard, issue here as well, go, you, you go ahead, Bruce, we'll get to this. Yeah, and when you say that, I think it's also important to ask this question because it keeps on coming up, the question of, is it in the curriculum? Right. And the answer, I believe, is no. It's not so, part Soji of the one, curriculum. It's not. Soji123 is a series of documents available as a resource to teachers to better understand the evolving a world around sexual education, but also more specifically around anti-bullying and around uh, having conversations to, to make people feel like they have a place in the world. It is not the curriculum. It is not the sex ed curriculum. It is not the math curriculum. It is not the English curriculum. It is a set of guiding documents to help teachers and administrators in school. Where the big divide exists, and when you watch that clip of Rustad and Banman, you see um, all of the faces in the crowd are South Asian. And there is a language barrier that is existing here. Um, My understanding is some of the Soji documents are available in multiple languages, but there seems to be larger concerns from South Asian and Asian communities where they are concerned about a value-based education approach and may not fully understand the extent of Soji there are also some conflicts around religion, that there are uh, some religions where people are being taught through that religion that they should not be 
having these types of discussions around sexual education, around uh, gender in classrooms. This is not what's happening in the school system. Like you said, Bruce, this is not a change in the curriculum. It is a resource for teachers to be able to have informed discussions, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your cultural background is, no matter what you're taught at home. It, it provides teachers a resource to discuss, uh, in some cases, very difficult at times conversations to have. Richard, I'm going to paraphrase Bruce Banman, who is the MLA from the area in Abbotsford where this rally was held. He has said that this is about love and it's about support and it's about anything but uh, bigotry. And yet we have so many people weighing in and saying, no, it is exactly about bigotry. But he comes back to saying it is about transparency in the school system and bringing things back to the parents. Where is this conflict when it comes to a lack of transparency? What is going on? What is the conversation here? Language may be an issue, Bruce. Parents, that there is no doubt there are some parents in the system who feel concerned about SOGI for various different reasons. The reality as well is that the school system is very open to having these conversations. That's where an effective principal or vice principal or teacher needs to have those direct conversation with those parents around SOGI to explain what the resource is. Bruce Bannon and John Rustad are hearing those concerns, and there'll be listeners out there who have those concerns as well. But we need to be honest in understanding what SOGI is, what the province is doing around the education system and the curriculum, how kids are being taught gender orientation issues and sexual education. All of that are the key issues that we need to have an honest conversation about. Politicians are going to try to take advantage of this. There's a belief by the Conservative Party of BC that there are people they are hearing from that feel disenfranchised, and those are votes that are available for them to go get in different communities across BC, and they are doing that. And I spoke to John Rustad about this today. What he's hearing from people is they feel discounted by government. They feel discounted by the mainstream media. They feel like their concerns around SOGI are not being heard. And when they raise concerns, they are being called bigots. The issue here is there needs to be a nuanced discussion because SOGI is important. SOGI is important for the school system. It's been well-researched. It's been supported by the previous government and the BC Liberals and the current government. And if you have concerns about SOGI, you have the right to those concerns, but speak to a principal and administrator. A politician may not be the best place to go to have those discussions to fully understand how SOGI is being used in the classroom. Richard, thanks so much for your perspective and breaking it down to what it is and what it isn't. Also, I must mention, because I know the mainstream media, and guess what, uh, Richard, you and I are in the mainstream media. We are. (laughs) Um, And people will take uh, some shots at the mainstream media over this issue. I think it is important to be clear about the facts and just what the facts are before it even opens up into that. Also, I want to mention that our buzz line is open. 604-331-2899. I am interested in every one of the comments that comes in this afternoon on the buzz line. Does not mean that all comments will warrant being played if they venture into territory that is actually going to be bigotry. But that being said, Richard, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. Happy New Year. Well, 2024 has kicked off on social media in the Bruce Bandman feed on hashtag BC Poly, if you follow X, uh, with a video of himself right next to his boss, BC Conservative leader John Rostad, at an Abbotsford rally that is definitely anti-Soji, expressing views. And here's more of what Bruce Benman told the crowd when he had a chance to talk to them. Enough's enough. We don't like this. We don't want this. Parents have rights. This is not about kids that are struggling. No child deserves to be bullied for any reason. There is a wave coming. You have to get behind those candidates and spread the word that the Conservative Party is the only party that will put this back to the drawing board where it belongs and turn it back to not bullying, not hate but love and understanding and put this to bed. That's Bruce Bandman talking to a group of friendly supporters for him 
uh, right there in Abbotsford in the Fraser Valley. Well, going a little bit further east into Chilliwack, we're joined now by the first openly trans trustee in Chilliwack, Terry Westerby. Uh, First of all, Terry, good afternoon and uh, happy new year to you. I'm sorry that uh, every time that we have this conversation, it is something that may actually be hurtful for you. Uh, What do you make of what uh, happened here with two BC politicians speaking out so squarely opposed to Soji and the schools? To be honest with you, Bruce, I am shocked. Um, It's profoundly ignorant to make statements uh, as such where to claim that Soji One Two Three is about anything except anti-bullying and inclusion and peace and love. Um, That's it is exactly as you put it. It's hurtful. You know, the comments uh, being used, and especially in that clip by Bruce Bandman saying it is about love, and I think he's getting at the fact that he is saying that the parents love their children and want to somehow protect their children, and he never says it. But if you look through some of the reaction to the feed of people who support this rally, there are people in there that mention things like pedophilia and pornography and things that have nothing whatsoever to do with Soji in the schools. What's going on here? I think it's a great question because what is going on is a conflation um, and a age-old homophobic rhetoric that's been around since the dawn of time. It's not been long that um, you know, LGBTQ people have even had the right to marry or have uh, children of their own. Um, When it comes to human rights, it's not been a very long history for us. Um, And we've been facing this this kind of uh, homophobic rhetoric for for a very long time. And that's exactly what it is. It's conflating being gay, being trans, being lesbian, um, as being some sort of predator, um, as being evil, vile, and a villain, when in reality we are just human beings who exist and who want the same rights as everybody else. Terry, you may um, believe that there has been progress in your school district in Chilliwack. There was definitely an outcry against the SOGI um, outline. I'm not going to call it even a program. It's not a program. It's not curriculum, but an outline for, for educators. There was an outcry against SOGI being brought in in Chilliwack. And we go back to trustees like Barry Newfeld, who were very outspoken against it. And there has been seen to be progress since then. And now this. Yeah, it's something that's lost on people is that uh, SOGI123 is a provincial resource that's provided to teachers to be able to access them according to their needs within their, their classrooms. So if a student is there, has needs, and that teacher needs resources, they are there for them to access, to, to provide those students with a, an inclusive classroom environment so that they have equal rights, equal access as any other student in that space. Um, it's, it's really a reflection of the 2016 human rights change in which it updated to include gender identity as a protected class. So if I said, you're not allowed to come in here because you're a woman or you're not allowed to have this because you're a man, that's a protected identity, therefore it is against your human rights. So we wanted to make sure the classrooms were a reflection of everybody's human rights, and therefore we have many resources, including SOGI123, available to teachers to ensure their classroom is fully inclusive and accessible to every single student, regardless of their identity or background. Terry, what about the parents who say that they are afraid that they won't be told or have information shared with them some of the information that is shared with educators in the school system when somebody that needs a resource of SOGI does come forward? Uh, I say that you need to have a relationship with your children and with your teachers. And then if you can work on your personal individual relationships, that's between you and your student and your, and your classroom Um, to generalize and ban um, every single person from having the autonomy to choose what's right for them and for their classroom and for their students and for their families. um, That's just a harmful generalization. That's not helping anyone at all. And it affects not just to us LGBTQ people, but it affects anyone of any sexual orientation or gender identity, which means every single human being on this earth will be affected by not having the ability to have full autonomy of what right, what's right for them and their family and their classroom. Terry Westerby, thank you so much for coming forward and sharing your views as a trustee, as an openly trans trustee in Chilliwack. I appreciate your time on this subject. Thank you so much for having me.
So one of the big union locals at Coast Mountain Bus has issued strike notice, warning of job action in Metro Vancouver. Well, it looks like the union has given the 72-hour strike notice today, which means as of Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, that job action could take effect. And it's likely to be in the form of an overtime ban. Where it goes from there, how it escalates, if it does escalate, that remains to be seen. But what we do know at this point is Coast Mountain Bus and its unionized workers are very far apart. The issue, one of the big ones right here, is wages. Also, we should know that uh, there has been a statement from Coast Mountain Bus uh, saying that Some general wage increases have already agreed to by all other employees of the company, and this offer is consistent with other public sector settlements in B.C. The statement goes on to say, we urge the union to return to the bargaining table to finalize a deal. We do not anticipate the union's planned overtime ban to impact transit services at this time. But understandably, some people who rely upon those transit services may be more than just a little bit concerned, especially with that big gap in the two sides and a lack of talks right now at the negotiating table. Let's bring in Metro Vancouver Transit Writers. That's the name of the group. Executive Director Dennis Edger. Thanks so much for being with us, Dennis. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Dennis, uh, tell me what, uh, what this means actually for many of the different riders. Are they going to be really concerned about this or are they going to kind of wait and see at this point? I mean, yeah, I think we'll have to pay attention to the news over the next couple of days to see if the strike is averted. I'm hopeful, but you know, the last thing that transit riders need is a strike that is going to lead to random cancellations and delays. That looks like what that could mean. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the bus network is the backbone of this region's transportation network. We know without it, things fall apart. Workers can't make it to their shift. Um, and, it, and it's not like all of them have a car sitting in the driveway waiting to switch over to. And that's a good thing. You know, we don't want them all to to jump into a car. Can you imagine if, if every transit rider got out there and jumped on the Alex Fraser or the Port Pan? It, it would just be crazy. So. So I'm I'm hopeful that we can get a resolution ahead of time, but but it is it is really cause for concern. Cause for concern, also, Dennis. Uh, I remember last year we had much smaller scale just because of population, but there was a transit strike out in the central Fraser Valley, mm-hmm. and that went on a very long time. That's got to be concerning. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the big difference between the central Fraser Valley. And Metro Vancouver is in the percentage of people that do ride transit. It, it was devastating for the people that needed the bus in, in Abbotsford and Chilliwack. But out here, it's, you know, buses are so much more a critical piece of our transportation infrastructure. Do you know how many transit riders we have these days? More than six. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. The fun fact uh, is that transit has come roaring back in the years since 2020. We now have over 1 million people using transit at least once a week, which works out to being about 40% of the region's population. And that is a decision usually made out of necessity, as you point out. It's not like everybody has an option of taking a car or transit and decides to take transit. So if I mean, there there's, a is... big, there's a big mix. You know, there are some okay. trips where transit is really competitive and it'll beat the car every day of the week. And there are, like you say, a lot of people that where transit is the most frugal option for them. So those people, when you start to think of who they might be, are quite often, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the elderly, people who have various levels of ability, people who are going to school and don't have a uh, full-time job, some of the people who are the most vulnerable. What are you hearing, if anything, from these groups? I mean, uh I, there, there's, this is a pretty fresh story, so it's, it's pretty new uh, for everyone to wrap their head around. Um, uh, you know, the one group that I've got my eye on are, are people that work shifts. You know, uh, if I, since I have the mic, uh, one thing I do want to say to employers who, who employ people that ride the bus is to really be patient. You know, cut a bit of extra slack this weekend for 
your workers that might be coming in on transit because it's going to be really hard for them to predict. They'll have to build in more time, but that might still not be enough for them. We're talking with Dennis Agar, Executive Director of Movement, which is uh, Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. Um, and, you know, when you're representing a group like this, you've got to look at all possibilities that could mm. come in, even without this job action we're looking at the possibility, and it's only a slight possibility, but inclement weather, meaning snow mm. coming up. So if one is to think of the worst case scenario right now, heading into next week, we could have snow and we could have job disruptions and a whole bunch of people waiting to get on a bus. That's right. Yeah, we're really going to need to to kind of be kind to each other out there. You know, snow disrupts the road network for cars as much as it does for buses. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're really going to have to um, just kind of, we, we know it's January, right? And things will get a little crazy, but they'll be extra crazy because of this potential um, job action. Okay, we're going to be looking for the best, of course, uh, and that would uh, maybe come out uh, following what happens on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock with any first stage of job action. Mm. Right now, again, the two sides are very far apart. Dennis, thanks so much for your time on this issue, and we hope to touch base with you again and possibly on some better news. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, let's switch topics and talk about illicit drugs and pick up on this kind of bizarre story. Eleanor Sturkel, BC United MLA, has posted over the past seven years, David Eby and the BC NDP have emboldened drug traffickers and normalized illicit drug use. I wonder what they, the premier and his ministers did with their gifts from Mr. Larson. She's talking about Dana Larson, and this goes back to an interesting um, Christmas card that was delivered to many MLAs, including the Surrey South MLA, Eleanor Sturko. In the Christmas card, they received some illicit drugs, a nice Christmas card, and, um, you know, is it funny? I don't think so. Uh, Is there reason behind this? I don't know. But some of the comments and some of the reaction to this on social media is telling that it is a divisive issue. I want to bring in Eleanor Sturkel to talk more about this because she is not only the shadow minister for mental health, addiction, recovery and education, but somebody that has brought up this topic about illicit drugs and how we're handling them and what we're going to do with a drug crisis that's ongoing and then to get this i don't know eleanor uh happy new year happy new year bruce thanks for having me on the show indeed indeed uh you got this card i guess you didn't laugh did you No, I didn't laugh. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, comments on social media, and I think people are really confusing um, the idea that I'm upset with receiving illicit drugs and having someone traffic drugs and put me in possession of an illicit substance with a lack of knowledge or perhaps even being unsupportive of the idea that things like psilocybin can be used to treat illnesses, which is actually not the case. I, in fact, had meetings in 2023 with uh, researchers who are researching the use of psilocybin uh, for things like end-of-life care, for treating PTSD, for microdosing for people with severe depression, for all kinds of things. And these researchers have licenses and they're um, following the rules and regulations that apply to them in their research and coming up with some really interesting things. What I am against is individuals taking the law into their own hands for whatever their reason is um, and trafficking drugs. We have rules and regulations in place for the protection of the public. And yeah, it's infuriating to see the impunity with which Mr. Dana Larson is operating in our community. Dana Larson did this before, not with uh, mushrooms, but he did it with cannabis before cannabis was even legalized. Uh, At the time, one of the people receiving a Christmas card from him with some cannabis, uh, as I understand it, was Christy Clark. Um, I, I'm surprised that this is continuing, but I guess the message is that uh, we are basically having a wrong approach as politicians to, uh, to drugs altogether. What should that approach be? Where do you stand, 
just for clarification. Well, listen, like I said in, in my previous answer, I think there is a role for all types of pharmaceuticals, including um, plant-based pharmaceuticals like psilocybin when it comes to treating a variety of ailments. And the research, you know, is, is still coming in. And the, you know, studies that are being done are being done with ethics reviews, with licenses, and don't include just opening up randomly shops and doing whatever the heck you want to do. Um, we have rules and regulations in place. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, our government, or sorry, our opposition was supporting the government in the idea, especially during the Select Standing Committee on Health, of having um, a medically supervised, you know, prescribed, for example, pharmaceutical alternatives to illicit drugs or what the NDP like to call safe supply, because it's monitored by healthcare professionals. It's under the... Um, you know, direction and also under the supervision of people who are trained medically um, and pharmacologically to deal with uh, the risks involved in prescribing those medications. And that would include something like psilocybin. People, you know, we wouldn't allow someone just to make their own Tylenol and sell it in a store. So why would we allow someone to take what they're claiming is a pharmaceutical, a medication, and open up their own medicine store? It, it doesn't make any sense. The rules and regulations are in place for the protection of the public you know, this isn't about me getting ticked off because I'm against mushrooms and the science that is being, you know, developed about using them as a potential medicine. It's about an individual being so arrogant that they feel that it is their absolute right to break the law, put elected officials in possession of a controlled substance, break laws with regard to trafficking drugs, break laws with regard to mailing and trafficking drugs. And, you know, and acting like that they're, they're trying to somehow be a hero in this mix when, you know what, there's all kinds of researchers out there doing this work, but they're playing by the rules, Bruce. They're applying for Health Canada applications. They're doing scientific studies and they're working within the rules. They exist to keep the public safe. And that's why it's important that we don't support uh, organizations that break the law, unlike what the NDP have done, you know, in supporting the Drug Users Liberation Front, who bought their drugs off of the dark web. And I don't know where Mr. Larson is getting his mushrooms and coca leaves from, maybe an illicit source. And so, again, could be a case of putting money into the hands of gang members, into cartels. It's time for us to expand that definition of harm reduction, not just to include people who use drugs, but to have a look at our overall communities and the harm that can be done to them by putting money and guns and, and all the things that go along with the illicit drug trade and empowering those people through, through you know, the government essentially emboldening them by making them partners. Well, there's another word that came up, and this one is one that really troubles me, and that is normalizing drugs. Because I think that with every one of these protest actions or steps, you're getting closer to it being kind of recognized as, yeah, we understand it, Eleanor Sturkel, what the law is, what the rules are. But come on, this is us just kind of doing this, and it's Vancouver, it's British Columbia, loosen up. Yeah, you know, uh, we've had many of these discussions, especially in the old Sturco household over the last couple of days, especially in light of the temporary injunction that was put on Bill 34 in terms of parks and playgrounds. And if you think back to the 90s, okay, I'm, I'm going to go on a little journey here about cigarettes. Um, and that's when the government said you must put um, packaging on cigarettes that warns you of the cancer risk. And they actually started putting the photos um, and then they came up with legislation that said you had to cover up the cigarette display so the kids wouldn't see it because we want to not normalize cigarette smoking for the next generation. We want to make it so that it is not normal behavior so that we can dissuade people from taking up that activity. There was actually a charter challenge to that. I think it was Section 7 of the Charter of Rights. The, the tobacco companies argued that it was taking away from their freedom of expression. They weren't able to advertise. But actually covering up and, and, and protecting especially youth from the normalization of smoking reduced smoking rates until, again, we had another insidious thing happen, which was vaping, which was, one could argue, was actually directed and marketed towards children. So it's about not normalizing, not because we want to shame those who are potentially using drugs at this time or maybe have a use disorder, but to help protect the next generation coming from what could be a terrible fate if they get addicted to illicit drugs, in particular opioids, which are very challenging for people um, who have a use disorder of those. There is this 
kind of strange gray line between not wanting to stigmatize things and also normalizing it. And it's a difficult one, isn't it? Well, you know, we want to be balanced, of course. We want to make sure that people understand it's not a moral failure. You know, you are not a bad person if you have an opioid use disorder. You actually have a a medical problem, which is why it's important we treat it through the medical system and continue to go through a prescriber-based model. But at the same time, one of the most important aspects of tackling the opioid crisis is has to be prevention and stopping the next generation, helping youth prevent youth from getting involved with drugs. And the more that we normalize the use, the recreational use of drugs, including marijuana, the more we normalize that behavior. And so, you know, you know, I don't want to be a Puritan. I'm not, you know, this isn't Nancy Reagan talking, you know, and just say no. Of course, there's, there's different things that are going to happen in different circumstances. But we have to make it a priority to ensure that the rules are followed. And that includes if there's going to be testing or, you know, the use of psilocybin, people need to do that following the rules that actually exist today. And currently, it's not approved for recreational use. It's not approved to be sold at a cafe. Coca is not approved to be sold. It is a controlled substance. And until those rules change or until it is approved for a medical use, there is no excuse for mailing 87 MLAs samples of your product. Eleanor Sturkle, I appreciate your clarity on this because quite often when you take a stance, not you per se, but any politician takes a stance, it gets muddied with a lot of reaction from different sides. I think uh, you provided some clarity on it, and I think it is a controversial issue, but one that has to be discussed. Thanks for spending time with us. Absolutely. Anytime, Bruce. Have a great day. I've got a goal for the next half hour, and that is to keep an open mind and find more empathy or understanding when it comes to impaired drivers who have and suffer with addiction issues. And I say this without any background that I've given you to this point, but I'm going to be honest. I have lost very people that are very close to me in impaired driving crashes. And it still hurts me when I think about it. I've also, over the course of 30 years uh, working on and off as a reporter, beat reporter, I've seen the terrible results of impaired driving crashes where people have lost their lives. And I think it is absolutely irresponsible, senseless, senseless. And there's nothing that can be made to me, make me even understand why somebody would get behind the wheel of a vehicle if they are impaired. And I say this, noting that we do have this story that's still gaining a lot of attention this week. A person that has had 21 convictions for impaired driving. Obviously, there is an issue there. And I see a headline, and I think the headline really has to be recognized for what it is. With It saying experts say the judicial system lacks support for repeat offenders. And I pause and I think about this, and I try to find that willingness to reach out and, you know, with my heart and feel anything other than what I feel for these people who have and continue to get behind the wheel of a car. This all comes after a man racked up 21 impaired driving convictions. Yep. And finally, in this case, we see that a judge has decided that enough is enough. But there is another side, and I do recognize this. And this is why I think it's important to bring in somebody like Kyla Lee to explain and perhaps have me understand with more knowledge what's going on here when somebody gets behind the wheel of a car that many times. Kyla Lee, I mean this in all sincerity. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Kyla Lee, by the way, traffic lawyer with Acumen Law. Talked to her many times before. But Kyla, thanks for being with me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. You know, Abbotsford Police say that this man had a lengthy history of impaired driving uh, convictions, pleading guilty to another charge this past month in connection with the crash back in 2022. Um, You know, still... As a traffic lawyer, you look at somebody like this and you think that they, and they do, they they need a defense, but how could you defend anybody with this sort of record? 
Well, at the end of the day, you know, everybody has constitutional rights um, that need to be protected and and everybody has uh, the ability to respond to an allegation against them. And if and until you, you plead guilty or are found guilty, you're presumed innocent of that allegation. For a person like this, though, you know, I I have some sympathy for them because they have been failed by the system. The system, you know, you, you get to conviction number 20, this being 21, The system has not recognized what your actual needs are. Jail is not going to deter you. If you're getting a five-year sentence, you've already done time in jail that's been in excess of a year. If you're you're racking up 20 convictions for impaired driving, you're on a lifetime driving ban. So prohibiting your driver's license is not going to change your behavior. There is something far more entrenched and far more serious that is not being addressed that is contributing to this continuum of conduct that needs to be stopped. So this continuum of conduct that needs to be stopped, what do we need to do? Certainly, we must have some ideas. Yes, we need uh, better supports for people who struggle with addiction issues in the criminal justice system. It's not just impaired driving, but this is a a stark example of it. Um, You know, we don't have specialized courts that deal with addictions. We have some drug treatment courts in Vancouver, um, but we don't have specialized DUI courts. And in the United States, there are lots of states that have specific courts that deal with people who get repeat offenses for impaired driving that put them into programs and systems that allow them to get treatment for their addiction and get out of the cycle of continuing to violate the law and continuing to rack up these charges. There are also states in the United States, if you are impaired and convicted of such, that the maximum penalty can be the death penalty. There are uh, states where, where if you are impaired and you kill somebody, you could get the death penalty. I mean, obviously, in Canada, we don't have the death penalty, and for good reason, because sometimes information can come out long after somebody's been convicted that exonerates them, and it is considered to be cruel and unusual punishment here in Canada. But we do have the, the life in jail available for people as a sentence if you kill somebody in an impaired driving accident. So it's not as though that's not a possibility, but... Aside from imprisoning somebody for the rest of their life, if you're not treating the underlying issue, they're going to continue to be a problem. And so our justice system needs to recognize that and respond to the real thing that's bringing the person before the court. I'm not even going to mention the 66-year-old's name, but when you're convicted or found to be guilty 21 times for impaired driving, uh, the system is definitely not working one way or the other, whether it is for or both ways, actually, whether it is for victims of impaired driving crashes or whether it is for the person who's behind the wheel and has to be behind the wheel for whatever reason, whatever drives them in their mind that says this is OK each and every time they get behind the car when they're impaired. What's going on here that can reasonably you talked about uh, penalties but that's not going to work supports is uh, are you talking about supports i'm still really trying to understand is it counseling what what goes on what can change it at at this point when you have that much of a history of impaired driving you have uh, undoubtedly a very serious alcohol addiction. And usually alcohol addiction and addictions issues come from mental health and trauma. Um, So this is somebody who doesn't even need treatment for alcoholism. They need treatment for whatever it is is causing them to continue to drink and then continue to make the decision to get behind the wheel after drinking, risking their own life and risking the lives of other people. That is somebody who, who has very serious issues caring about themselves and caring about other people that could be addressed. I mean, there are great programs for trauma therapy and counseling and addictions issues in Canada, but they are not accessible through the route of the traditional justice system. They're usually only accessible to wealthy individuals who can pay to attend them. When you have clients who are repeat offenders, impaired drivers, what is their reaction to this? Do they know that in the sober light of day that they've done something that is horrendously wrong or do they shrug their shoulders? Most 
people that I deal with who who believe that they're guilty of an impaired driving offense and and either want to plead guilty or want to determine whether they have a legal defense before pleading guilty are extremely remorseful. Most people, and especially people who are repeat offenders, they know the situation that they've put themselves in. And their problem is not being able to separate their alcohol use and driving. It's not a desire to put the public at risk or a desire to cause harm. And often their their remorse over the decision that they've made to drive impaired a, a second or a third or, or however many times is so great that it drives them into a greater depression, which actually exacerbates the problem because then they turn again to alcohol to treat the feeling that they're not enjoying having to deal with. Yeah, I also find it interesting that we still see these sentences that hardly ever reflect anything that's notable in terms of jail time. Not in this case, by the way. Finally, we did say uh, four years, 356 days in jail. But uh, for first responders, people that actually end up on scene, police officers, paramedics, firefighters, what they see when these impaired drivers cause the harm, the destruction is completely different than what a Crown prosecutor even sees, let alone a defense lawyer. Do you think that there is a disconnect in the judicial system? Or do you think the judicial system, maybe conversely, is actually more likely to come down way too hard on some of these impaired drivers? Well, the sort of mechanism that the judicial system has to deal with impaired drivers is limited by the powers that judges are given under the criminal code. And unfortunately for a first-time offender, uh, it's my opinion that the penalties under the criminal code are too harsh. Um, They result in, in, I've had clients who've committed suicide because they're terrified of the penalties. Um, They've, they've, left people unemployed, people have lost their homes because they've lost their jobs, because they've lost their driver's licenses for a year. Um, There used to be a provision of the criminal code. We never had it enacted in British Columbia, but it was uh, used in other provinces that allowed a judge to impose what was known as a curative discharge. So a person could walk away without a criminal record, um, but they would end up uh, being forced to essentially participate in treatment. They would have to willingly um, agree to this and participate in treatment. It would treat the underlying issue to try and stop people from coming back to the system again. We never brought this in in BC. We should have, and it should never have been eliminated from the criminal code because it saved a lot of lives. A curative discharge, willingness to participate in some sort of program to change. Now, that doesn't exist now in BC. That's what you're saying. It doesn't exist now in British Columbia or at all. It was removed from the criminal code in December 2018. And the closest now you can get is an agreement. And again, we don't have this in BC, but in other provinces, you can agree to have an interlock put in your vehicle. So a breathalyzer in your car that'll prevent your car from starting um, in exchange for not having a driving prohibition. But you still end up with a criminal record and there's no treatment. There's just monitoring. Do you think there is a will, a political will to change that so there is a treatment side that could result in some rehabilitation without penalty? Absolutely not. There's no political will to do anything that might be perceived or used by the opposition as being lenient towards impaired drivers. I mean, it's, as you said at the beginning of this segment, right, it's easy to get uh, emotional about this issue because we know it's well recognized the harm that's caused by impaired driving every year. Most people know somebody whose lives have been affected and forever changed from the actions of an impaired driver. So you don't score political points by doing something that might make life a little bit better for those people, even though it would actually make the road safer for everybody else okay some really good points there kyla thanks for being patient with me because i get very emotional with this issue i may not necessarily and don't agree with everything you say but i think that you are articulate and you're well learned uh when it comes to this issue and i really do appreciate your insight well thank you for letting me share it I am a guy that does believe in solutions, and here's a problem that has needed a solution for quite some time. And I'm reminded of just how bad this problem is because it happened again on Christmas Day in North Delta. Did you hear this story about a driver that uh, had his vehicle in the driveway on Christmas morning and somebody coming in under the underbelly of the vehicle and stealing the catalytic converter? Catalytic converters have been a hot property for quite some time. 
It's the platinum in them and the platinum group of metals, which uh, get you some cash on the open market. And that has thieves finding some rewards time and time again. And what can be done about it? Well, there is a solution. And it comes from technology and innovation and in an inventor like this inventor, Rod Newlove, who has the converter defender and alarm system. And he joins us now. Hey, Rod, thanks for being with us. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. Tell me about uh, how this, even before we talk about your alarm system, how did you come to thinking that this was something that was needed? Well, you can see it was a huge problem. It was pretty prevalent in the media for quite some time. And and I just started thinking, what's a, what's a good solution for this? So we went through a whole bit, bunch of different renditions of this thing, and uh, finally we came up with something that uh, works really well in detecting any vibration on the exhaust system when the vehicle's parked, and uh, yeah, it works good. Good. So what did you come up with? How does this work, and how long did it take to get to the point where it's actually a final product? Yeah, we probably started on this about three years ago. Uh, I'd say probably half a dozen different renditions, and uh different types of technology to, to sense the vibration. But uh, well, right now, there's just a vibration sensor that basically mounts on the exhaust system. And if it detects any movement on the exhaust system or vibration from a uh, reciprocating saw or anything, it uh, after the vehicle's parked, it arms itself automatically after three minutes. And, uh, yeah, and it uh, sets off a 140-decibel horn that uh, hopefully will scare the most people away. And, uh so it's got its own horn that is quite separate from the regular car alarm system, right? Yeah, that's correct. We looked at interfacing with uh, existing uh, vehicle horns and stuff, but a lot of these newer vehicles, the horns are buried like up underneath the inner fender well and stuff, and just accessing them is just uh, a nightmare. So we decided we'd just supply our own horn with the, with the device, and uh, yeah, it works out really well. How big is it? Uh, the device is actually, it's all pretty tiny. The, the sensor that mounts on the exhaust is pretty small. Uh, the the packaging of the, of the actual module, the electronics is uh, maybe maybe inch and a half square. It's it's pretty small, but uh, but it's very effective. Now, I'm all, always curious how the business model works for something like this. And I would imagine there's got to be enough incentive for customers to go out and actually purchase this. But uh, let's start by talking about what the cost is. When somebody loses a catalytic converter, what are we looking at? Sure. It depends on the vehicle, but it can range anywhere from 1000 to some of these newer uh, trucks that have a a DPF SCR and a, a converter type system on them. They can run up to six, seven thousand dollars to replace those. So it's uh, it's pretty cheap insurance. Six or seven thousand dollars, and sometimes you're looking at that for fleet vehicles, where you want to cover the cost yourself because you don't want it to go on to fleet insurance. I would imagine. Absolutely, and downtime and everything else goes along with it too, right? Right, and six or seven thousand dollars. Now that is for maybe some of the heavier trucks, I would imagine. But I also know that there are some vehicles that are more prone to having their catalytic converters stolen than others. Yeah, for sure. The hybrid uh, ones seem to be more attractive, and uh, one understand the precious metals, the the palladium, the rhodium, and the platinum. It's uh, there's a lot more of it in the in the hybrid vehicles to try and reduce the emissions on them. So they seem to be a, a target. You know, it always surprises me that it is a target rod because I think uh, if I was to be a holder of one of those three metals, I wouldn't even know where to sell it, let alone uh, being able to answer the questions, where'd you get it, buddy? Yeah, exactly. That, well, that's, I think, part of the problem. And uh, until there's some legislation that uh, prevents people from possessing converters that they don't own, um, I, I it's going to be a problem. It's going to continue, I think. Okay, so let's talk about this. We talked about the price being anywhere from a thousand to like six or seven thousand dollars if you lose a catalytic converter. Some of these people have lost several on the same vehicle. I know that. But what is the price of when you get to market? And are you at the market stage? What is the price going to be for customers? Yeah, we've been uh, selling this for about six months now. Uh, it sales are going really well. Uh, the price is two sixty nine. It can be purchased online or uh, check our website at converterfender.com. There's a list of uh, local uh, shops in the Vancouver area that actually do do the installs and they do carry them. 
And you're a complete BC company, aren't you? Yeah, you bet. These are manufactured and, and uh, developed in, in BC in Kelowna. How did you get the funding to go ahead and try this out? I know anytime you come up with some sort of invention, it's not going to be cheap. Did yeah, you no, apply it, for anything there? Or? No, it's all just out of the pocket. So it's uh, it's kind of what I do. I've been through a few different uh, projects in the past, and uh, this is uh, yeah, this one's been uh, been really good. So it wasn't a, a huge investment. It's probably more of the time than anything, Bruce. So. But, uh, yeah, no, but we're ready. We have lots of inventory, and we're good to go. Rod, what are the next steps for 2024? We ask this question because it's a new year. Where are you going with this? I don't know. I, I'm trying to get some U.S. distribution on these things. Uh, we've got uh, pretty good Western Canada presence on them now. We've got a couple um, people out in the East. But uh, I'd really like to get this thing into the U.S. because it's, uh, it's a bigger problem down there than this is here even. So. And it's a bigger market for sure. Oh, for sure. There's half a billion dollars uh, last year in uh, in the United States in converters that were reported stolen. So there's, the number's probably closer to a billion dollars. So. And who are most of your customers? Just people that are have, you know, just cars, or is it uh, the fleet vehicles? All of them. Uh, we've got uh, lots of fleets that are on board, and, uh, and we get just lots of just regular people that are trying to protect their, their equipment, right? Rod, before I let you go, what's the reaction being from law enforcement on this? It's been good. You know what? Uh, the few guys that I know on the force and stuff, they uh, they they're all in. They think it's a great idea, and uh, they they see it uh, helping the problem. So that's that's the idea. If anyone wants more information on your product, is there a website or anything that explains uh, not only just commercially but some of the story behind it? Yeah, absolutely. If you check out ConverterDefender.com. Uh, all the information is there. It tells all about the product. There's some pictures of it, installation videos. Uh, yeah, it's uh, everyone's there. Okay, thanks for the story. Innovation indeed to solve a problem that we've been hearing about. Rod Newlove, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yep, thanks a lot, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.